Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. We're turning to God's Word this morning, and as we do so, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 3. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, a time that the church historically has set aside both to remember the, the long centuries that Israel waited and suffered patiently looking in faith for that promised Messiah who would come, but also a a time that we consider how we continue to wait through this world, the fallen world, as we wait for the return of Christ when he will fulfill all of God's promises fully. We're going to take these four Sundays leading up to Christmas to look at four highlights of God's promise of the Savior's coming before we jump back into Mark in the new year. Of course, like just about everything surrounding Christmas, the retailers are threatening to co-op Advent for themselves as a great way to sell us more stuff. And so now you can enjoy each day of Advent a unique beauty product, or you can get the jewelry Advent calendar, the daily wine Advent calendar, the Harry and David deluxe snack Advent calendar. And the, the list goes on. And I, I don't mean to kill your fun if you're enjoying one of these or throw cold water on you if any of you husbands got one of these for your wives already. But let's just remember that Advent is about waiting, waiting in prayer and expectation for God to fulfill His promises. That is our heart and our focus. So this is my goal over the next four Sundays to trace the history of God's promise of a Savior And I hope that in doing so, this week's will help sharpen our sense of anticipation for coming, the coming of Christ as we prepare for for Christmas. So today we begin at the very beginning with Genesis chapter 3. I want to read the whole chapter, so if you have your Bibles with you, follow as we read Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the servant said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? 
Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, Well, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return." The man called his wife's Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Father, this is your word. I pray that you would use it in our hearts. Convict us of sin. Draw us to Christ, I pray, for his sake. Amen. The word that I want us to continue to come back to throughout this Advent season is anticipation. Anticipation is that sense of expectation for something or someone who is going to come. It includes longing, desire, excitement, oftentimes some nervousness or anxiety. But it always comes with that sense of time passing slowly as you wait for what you are looking ahead to. There's a number of images that come to mind when I think of anticipation. I think of a child waiting for dad to come home from work at night. I used to have an orange chair in my room upstairs that I could see farther down the road. And I would sit in that chair and and watch for his car to come home after a day of work. I also think of the Norman Rockwell painting called Before the Date. If you've seen this Rockwell painting, on one panel is uh, a girl, high school girl, anxiously and repeatedly doing her hair in front of the mirror, while on the other panel is the boy surrounded by chaos in his room, trying to make himself look presentable, presumably as the two prepare for their first date. I think of Richard Els's painting, entitled simply, Expectation. The painting shows a large crowd with some milling about as time is passing slowly, but most of them with their gaze fixed in the distance, with clouds rolling in over a darkening landscape. And as you look at this painting, you just feel the intense interest, but also the uncertainty 
Something is coming, but we're not exactly sure what it is or when it's going to arrive. These are a few of the pictures that I get in my mind when I think of the word anticipation. But I think we would have to say, if we're going to understand our anticipation, we have to know two things. We have to know our situation, and we have to know what's coming. Our sense of anticipation will depend upon our our predicament now. Are we just looking forward to something, or is our need desperate? And it will depend on what is coming. Is it something that happens every year? Is it a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? Is it something good? Is it something bad? And the same is true spiritually. Our anticipation of the arrival of Christ is going to depend on our understanding of our predicament and of God's promise. And Genesis 3 describes both. And the main point that I hope we see this morning is that Adam and Eve's first sin yielded devastating consequences for all mankind. And yet God's response launched a promise of full redemption to come. So our predicament, Adam and Eve's first sin, yielding devastating consequences for all mankind, but God's promise of full redemption to come. That's what I want us to see this morning. So let's start by looking more at our predicament. What is our situation? When we read the account of God's creation of the world, the Bible declares that all things began well. Genesis 1.31, God surveys his creation and says it is all very good. Genesis 2.23, Adam sings this song of joy when he first meets his wife whom God created and brought to him. And throughout Genesis 2, we read God and man dwelling in communion together in the Garden of Eden. But then in Genesis 3, the fall of mankind because of Adam and Eve's sin yields a deep brokenness in creation and in humanity in particular. When Eve and then Adam believe the serpent's lies and and assert their will over obedience to God's will, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil which God had commanded them not to eat, a series of consequences result and we see them throughout Genesis 3. It starts in verse 7. Verses 7 through 10 describe the shame that come to Adam and Eve upon their sin. Shame is that feeling of being exposed. It's that feeling of being vulnerable or unacceptable to others because of something you've done or sometimes because of something that's been done to you. But that's Adam and Eve here. As soon as they sin, they realize that they are naked course it's not that they didn't know they were naked before but when they sin it's that feeling of being exposed of now being unacceptable and so the fear of blame for what they've done the fear of rejection leads them to hope that they can patch things together with a fig leaf maybe this fig leaf can make them feel secure and presentable again Then in verse 8, though, we find out this shame is not just before one another. They don't just realize their nakedness before one another. Their shame extends to their relationship with God. As soon as they hear God in the garden, they decide a fig leaf isn't enough, and so they put a few trees between them and God. But of course, Psalm 139 tells us we could fly to the uttermost depths of the sea, and that would not hide us from the gaze of God. So the tree branches that they hide behind certainly aren't going to do it. And when God calls to them, man's shame comes out. Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked before you. 
You see that statement that before God there is a vulnerability and feeling of being unacceptable that leads to Adam's fear. But in the face of shame, God responds immediately by pointing his finger to the source of Adam's shame. Who told you you were naked? God asked. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And here's the the second consequence of the fall. Not only is there shame, but the root of that shame is guilt. Adam and Eve are no longer innocent before God. They have broken God's commandment and stand guilty, having earned punishment by their actions. They are guilty of the punishment of death that God had promised. And so we see shame, we see guilt. But then as we get to verses 12 and 13, we see practical consequences coming from sin. Rather than being of one heart and one flesh, as husband and wife were, as they were created, they begin to try to shift blame to one another. Adam says, it's all Eve's fault. This woman you gave me, God. And Eve tries to shift blame to the serpent. Sir, it's the serpent you created, God. And you see what Adam and Eve are doing, don't you? They realize their guilt. They realize their shame, and so they are trying to protect themselves with a defensiveness that would shift the blame to someone else. And that yields a brokenness in their relationship. And this instinct to protect ourselves at other people's expense yields all sorts of relational conflict and brokenness. We see here with blame shifting. By the time we get to chapter 4, we're going to see the same self-protecting response lead to murder as Cain kills Abel to cover his sense of shame and guilt. And this is how far relationships can be destroyed by the selfishness and self-protectiveness of sin. In verses 16 to 19, God describes more practical consequences. The tasks which God had given to each Adam and Eve that were closest to their purpose and the contribution of blessing that they would bring are now cursed and will be marked with pain. Eve will experience pain in childbirth as mankind multiplies to fill the earth. And Adam, who was called to work the ground and, and, and bring beauty and, and blessing from the earth, will, the ground will now be cursed so that it produces thistles and thorns. And by the sweat of his brow, he will work and bring forth food. As God declares, though, these consequences are just a marker, a prelude of death that will come. God had warned that death would be the result of disobedience, and God declares here, you will work in pain till you return to the ground, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. I can't help read these verses of God's curse on mankind without thinking of the words of Ecclesiastes, as Ecclesiastes describes our situation here in this fallen world as mankind faces his daily toil under the sun until we all die, rich and poor, male and female, righteous or wicked, as the consequence of our sin. And of course, if all this was not enough, in verses 23 and 24, Adam and Eve lose their access into the sanctuary of God. Access to the tree of life is cut off. There will be no more walking with God in the garden. 
Now a cherubim with a flaming sword guards the entry to keep them out of his sanctuary. And so, so we look back over these verses and we see what's, what is Adam and Eve's predicament? Shame, guilt, broken relationships with each other and with God, separation from God's presence, pain in life, and inevitable death. But these consequences weren't confined to Adam and Eve. Because Adam and Eve represented all mankind, we all fell into sin with them. And the book of Romans describes this so well. The book of Romans declares now, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks after God. Because, Paul tells us, through one man's sin, death came to all men, for all men sinned. And the wages of sin is death. And so now our shame, our guilt, our broken relationships, our pain in life, our separation from God and inevitable death bear witness to the fact that this is true of us as well as Adam and Eve. And I want to just consider the significance of this for a moment. Because if we're going to have the proper anticipation for the coming of Christ, we have to be willing to acknowledge how bad our predicament is on our own. There's countless cliches that we as humans have come up with to try to mask the depth of our situation. Cliches like, we all make mistakes. No one is perfect. To be human is to err. But of course, the problem is not that we make mistakes. Too often, we're like two kids in the living room of their grandparents' house looking at their grandmother's vase, which they've just knocked off the stand, is lying in 10,000 pieces shattered across the floor. And these two kids are looking at each other thinking, can we glue this back together before grandma realizes what we've done? And of course, there's no way we can glue that vase back together. And at some point, we too as humans, have to stop trying to duct tape things together and stop trying to protest that we're doing our best, we're decent people, and surely God wouldn't condemn us for that. At some point, we have to acknowledge that the problem is not the world and what's wrong with it or what it's done to us or the mistakes we've made. No, the problem is our sin, that we have disobeyed God, that we have fallen with Adam and Eve and continued to sin like Adam and Eve. And now the difficulty of our toil of work and school, the conflict in our broken relationships, the shame that we feel, the guilt from sinning against God, the pain and poor health and inevitable death after it, all confirm, they're all markers confirming that we have fallen with Adam and Eve, that death will come and that we also will be separated from God because of our sin. This is where we stand. This is our predicament, which should spark a desperate longing for some hope, if there could possibly be any, for sinners like us. But that leads us secondly to God's promise. And here we want to zero in on verse 15. God addresses the serpent, and clearly when he does so, he's not just addressing a snake. He's, rep- he's addressing a personal figure 
who opposes God and his people. Revelation chapter 20 verse 2 tells us that this ancient serpent is none other than the devil and Satan. And God takes verse 15 to declare war. You see, God himself initiating this war, declaring that there, he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And it may strike us as uh, ironic that the beginning of hope is a declaration of war. How is the declaration of war the beginning of hope? But I would imagine if you would have talked to someone in occupied France in 1941, you would find out that the United States declaring war against Hitler's Germany was a spark of hope. Because when we are enslaved and under impression with no hope of getting out of it, war is absolutely a source of hope if a champion comes and promises to fight to set us free. And for humanity condemned in guilt shame and death. God's declaration of war here is the unexpected engagement of the very king of the universe we had just offended to give hope to the very people who stood guilty before him. I want you to notice a few things about this war that God initiates. First, note that it's a generational history-long war. God says he is not just pitting the snake against the woman, but the offspring of the serpent against the offspring of the woman. Now, some commentators uh, talk here about how uh, even to this day, people and snakes don't like each other. And that may be true for many, but I think that misses the point of this verse. It's not future snakes that are at war with people. It is those who follow Satan and who side with him that are at war with God's people. I think this is why Jesus refers to the Pharisees in Matthew 12, 34 as a brood of vipers, that is, offspring of a snake. Or why Jesus says in John 8, 44, that the Pharisees there are children or offspring of the devil, their father. Because by opposing Jesus, the Pharisees are demonstrating that they have chosen their side in this war against God's offspring. In other words, from Genesis 3.15 on, all of humanity through all of history is divided between the offspring of Satan and the offspring of the woman, and a spiritual battle is waging between them. But though this war will be history-long and worldwide, the war will actually be decided by just two beings in one particular battle that they will fight. Notice, notice grammar. Grammar becomes important here in verse 15 because God goes from using the plural, your offspring and her offspring, to using the singular, he. He, a singular male offspring, will bruise your. That's you in the singular. You can't see that in English, but that's your in the singular. Your head and you singular will bruise his heel. This conflict is going to come down to a singular male offspring of Eve against Satan himself. But God declares that the result of this battle that's going to happen between these two is already decided. Satan is going to bruise this man's heel, yes, but the man will crush Satan's head. 
And in this beautiful declaration, in the face of shame and guilt, of pain, of separation from God and of death itself, God here declares that there is hope for mankind. And that hope is going to center on one man, an offspring of Eve who would come someday to win the battle and crush the serpent forever. And from the moment of that declaration, mankind has been waiting in anticipation. When will this promise come? If we know our true need and we realize what is promised, our anticipation is peaked. Of course, God goes on to reiterate and demonstrate this promise and his grace, his gracious gift of this promise in verse 21. Because there God covers Adam and Eve with garments of skin. And we remember that God could have brought the ultimate judgment of death on mankind right away. But he did not do so. In his mercy, he provided the shed blood of an animal to cover their guilt and gave them the skins of animals to cover their shame. And in this way, he not only promised the hope of removal and guilt and shame and death in the future, but he made provision for them now that by his grace and mercy, they might continue to live before him in faith while they waited for the fullness of his promise to arrive. And so here is God's gracious gift, the promise that he has made that we wait for, for our full redemption. So we've seen our predicament if we're willing to hear it and see it. We've seen God's promise. But what I want to do is step back for a minute now and consider the significance of God's promise. Because there are several factors that can make a promise greater and our anticipation for it more acute. How badly the promise is needed can raise the significance of a promise. I was thinking about this recently. I was asked to, to write a, a small piece and there was a small honorarium that I was promised for writing it. And I was thinking, you know, that's a nice incentive. But imagine if, imagine if my rent and electric bill were due and I had no money to pay it. And someone said to me, if you will write this, I will pay you money. And it will provide for you and what you need. That would change things significantly. It would be a much greater promise that I would anticipate much more because of the need that I was in. The extent of a promise can also raise its significance. Over the course of of my time of home ownership, I've had several times when someone has promised to come over and help me with something that I didn't know how to do. And that's a wonderful promise. But it's nothing compared to HGTV's show, Build It Forward, where a group promises to do an entire home renovation for a family that's in need. The extent of that promise raises its significance substantially. The cost of a promise to the person making it also raises its significance. I was thinking about this recently. At at some point, it would be nice if I had a new bike. And if Jeff Bezos came to me and said, oh, I'll give you a new bike, no big deal. Well, it might be nice, but it's not that significant. It wouldn't cost Jeff Bezos anything. It's pennies out of his pocket for him. But if my kids came to me and said, we would like to buy you a bike, and we're going to mow the lawn, 
and do chores and save up our money and then spend it for your bike. That promise would be far more significant because of what it would cost them. I'm not expecting it, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) But that would raise the significance. And of course, the person who makes a promise can also raise the significance. If, If you're receiving a promise of a gracious gift from someone whom you've just offended or hurt, that promise takes on a greater significance. And if the promise comes from someone of high importance and fame, that that can raise the anticipation of a promise. See, there's all these factors that can make a promise more significant and raise our anticipation. And if we turn to Genesis 3, we find that every single one of these factors is true of the promise that God has made of us. God is the king of highest heaven. He is worthy of all praise and honor. And he's the holy one whom we had just offended and sinned against, going our own way instead. And yet he's the one who comes and promises us hope. And the hope that he promises is going to cost him greatly. Because what we find out is that this, this he, this offspring of Eve whose heel will be bruised is none other than God's own son. So that his promise to Adam and Eve that their offspring is going to bring hope is nothing less than his sovereign decision to send his own son to be a casualty in this war in order to guarantee its victory for our sake. The cost will be great. And of course, the extent of the promise is astounding for any one of us who knows our shame, the shame of our past sins and what we have done. God is offering a complete covering that you will no longer be exposed or vulnerable. You will no longer be unacceptable. Rather, you will be accepted in the sight of God, held firm in His embrace, and He will then publicly declare that you are precious in His sight on the last day because of Christ. And God is offering a covering for guilt. By faith in Christ, you will no longer receive the punishment that your sins deserve, but rather you will be declared innocent and righteous in His sight because of Christ who died in our place. And He is promising to send His Spirit to remake us in His image and reconcile us to one another and he's promising the future of a resurrection body where all pain will be wiped away and death itself will be done away with in the face of life forever. The promise is of of vast extent. So when we consider who's making the promise and the cost that it comes with and the extent of the promise and the depth of our own need, this promise deserves the highest anticipation. It's the greatest promise we could ever receive. Maybe for some of you, this puts Christmas in a, in a whole new light. And maybe you have a sense of your, your need for Christ and the hope that he holds out to you in a, in a way that you haven't before. And if that's the case, I would, would just invite you and encourage you to turn from, from your sin, from living life your way, and receive this promise, this offer of life through faith in such a Savior. Maybe others of you are thinking, well, I've heard this all a million times before. And if that's, if that's your response, can I just remind you how easy it is to lose sight of how great this promise is and how desperately we need it? 
And sometimes the Christmas season, when we should be focusing on it specifically, is the easiest season of all to lose sight of it. What with all of the the busyness and the, the things we have to complete in the schedule and what we have to buy and what we hope others buy us and how to please this person and that person and the whole chaos of of the season can cause the real significance of this to fly right out the window. So at the beginning of this Advent season, this is our call. Continue to wait eagerly for the fulfillment of these promises, just as our ancestors in the faith have waited year after year. Starting with Adam and Eve, they waited. And God's people waited through exploding wickedness, through a flood and the rescue of an ark, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, through famine and a rescue from Egypt, through wandering in the wilderness, through promised land, idolatry, exile, restoration, through 400 years of silence and occupation, God's people waited. And even after Jesus came and died and rose again and fought this decisive battle, God's people have continued to wait through the centuries as this war goes on and presses with suffering and temptation until that final day when this promise will be fully and finally and completely fulfilled. So let me encourage you. Our anticipation goes on with patience because Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3.9 that the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise but is waiting for the perfect time appointed in His sovereign, wise plan not wishing that any should perish, but that all his people should reach repentance. So our anticipation, long though it may seem, goes on with patience. But our anticipation also goes on with confidence. Star Mead has written an excellent children's book entitled Grandpa's Box. And in the story, Grandpa explains to Amy and Mark that they and he are involved in a great war, a war that's been going on for a long time. But, as Grandpa explains, the great thing about this war is that even though it's so hard and so long, and even though the enemy is so powerful, the war is already won, and even the enemy knows it. It's a beautiful statement. I think of Paul's words in Romans 16.20. He had to have Genesis 3.15 playing in his mind when he wrote, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. See, our anticipation goes on with patience and it goes on with confidence and it will go on until that rider on the white horse, the offspring of Eve who died but was raised, comes and strikes the nations until the ancient serpent Satan is thrown into the lake of fire and crushed forever until all those whose names are written in the book of life will be welcomed into the new Jerusalem with guilt gone, and shame gone, and pain gone, and death gone, and they are welcomed back to the tree of life. And they are welcomed to walk again in the presence of God. And they will wait with him, to be with him, in life forevermore. That's what we're waiting for. That's what will be accomplished when Christ comes to fulfill everything God promised when he launched it here in Genesis chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, this is a glorious promise that you gave your people right on the very first moment 
of our sin and, and guilt and death. When our need, when we realize the acuteness of our desperation. In that very moment you came and made a promise. And now over the years you have continued to reiterate that promise. You've begun to fulfill it. You fought the decisive battle in Christ. But now we continue to wait. Father, may we wait with patience, knowing your timing is perfect. May we wait with confidence, knowing that you have won the victory and your promises are sure. May we wait in hope with our eyes fixed on Christ as the one we need and the one who has brought us salvation. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.